Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 11. Jailbirds. The day before I headed off to start in Jailbirds, I packed my carpet bag, then unpacked it and packed it again a couple of times. I was as nervous as a kitten in Battersea Dog's home and couldn't settle. The part I had learned to do was straightforward enough and I had it down pat, but I couldn't stop thinking that I was only on trial and wondering who was to be judge and jury. A cup of tea, that's what I needed, so I stuck my head through the scullery doorway, but there was no sign of Clara. I popped into the parlour, as she called the best front room, and there she was, her nose pressed up against the window, half hiding herself behind the curtain, fascinated by something happening in the street outside. "'Come here, come here,' she hissed when she noticed I was there and beckoned me to her side. "'Do you see? There, look!' I peered out, immediately steaming up a patch of window pane, which I set about wiping with my sleeve. To my astonishment, Clara slapped my arm down. "'Don't do that. They'll see you!' Finding a clear bit of glass to spy through, I saw the woman from next door standing by her front gate. It seemed that she'd had a visitor, who was just now making her farewells, a small but forceful lady who had an expensive-looking brown waiting at the roadside. The two of them embraced, the visitor raising a gloved hand to wipe away a tear from her friend's cheek. "'Do you see who it is, do you?' Clara whispered. "'Tis only Marie herself.' "'Who?' "'Marie Lloyd, you great tutney bit.' "'Is it?' I gasped and leaned forward to gawp pretty shamelessly at the legendary queen of the music hall. Clara, mortified with embarrassment now, tried to pull me back out of sight, but she was too late, and Mary Lloyd gave our house a cheery wave and a salute before stepping aboard her transport. Our neighbour watched her go, then turned and walked slowly back up her path, flashing a wan smile at our window. Clara turned away, shaking her head sadly. "'Poor woman,' she said. "'Poor, poor thing.' "'But who is she?' I wanted to know. "'And why is Mary Lloyd, of all people, coming to call on her?' "'But Clara would only shake her head before disappearing into the scullery, "'where after a moment I heard the sound of the kettle being filled "'and her voice singing, "'Oh, Mr Porter, what shall I do?' "'Funnily enough, the train to Birmingham that went on to crew, "'although Mary Lloyd wasn't really singing about trains, was she, "'was the very one I was catching the next morning.' I made my way up to Euston Station and into the Great Hall, a mighty echoing chamber that dwarfed anything the good old college had to offer with its sweeping, curving staircases and its ornate panelled ceiling. Like a cathedral it was, I thought, dedicated to the worship of the steam engine. A statue of George Stevenson stood on a plinth at the far end, and this was where I'd arranged to meet my new colleagues as none of us would recognise one another on sight. It seemed that this landmark was a popular meeting place, and a short, fat fellow with a red nose was already leaning with his back to the monument, puffing away on a cigarette. He had a rather garish checked suit on and a bow tie, like a newspaper cartoon of a comedian. "'Excuse me, sir, are you with Carnos?' A look of pop-eyed indignation appeared on the man's face, and he flushed bright red. "'Am I with Carnos?' he cried, taking a theatrical step back in amazement. "'Do I look like I'm with Carnos, sir?' "'Yes,' I said. "'Yes, you do.' "'Well, I am not, sir. As a matter of fact, I sell brushes.' 
and he tapped his suitcase with his toe end. And I might add that I'm very well respected in that trade, sir, very well respected. Now buzz off. Carnos indeed. I buzzed a little way off to one side as he chunted away to himself and surveyed the throng of busy people passing through the station or sitting on the bench seats lined up on either side of the concourse. Where did it come from, I wondered, that brush salesman's disdain for the very idea that he might have been a comic? Did he not realise that being a comic was a far superior way to spend one's life? No, I'm not this Arthur Hoosis, the cartoon comedian was loudly insisted. I sell brushes! Now buzz off! Another hapless fellow was backing away apologetically, and I tapped him on the shoulder. Excuse me, I said, are you looking for Arthur Dando? Ah, that's you, is it? Excellent. Right, follow me. I followed him as he hustled through a ticket barrier, waving a pair of tickets high above his head, then along a platform, up onto a train, where he ushered me into a compartment. Three others were already waiting inside, two young chaps who looked more than a little cowed, and a tall fellow with slick-down hair sitting with his arms and legs crossed, an air of barely suppressed fury about him. "'Here he is, Sid. I found him,' my companion said breathlessly. "'Finally?' "'Yes, well.' The fellow who'd fetched me smiled at each of us in turn, as if trying to inject a bit of sunshine into the compartment. "'Now let me see. I didn't even introduce myself, did I? I'm Frank O'Neill, company manager. This is Mr Sidney Chaplin, our principal comic.' The principal comic's eyes narrowed. "'And these bright sparks are Mike Asher and Albert Austin,' O'Neill continued. "'Gentlemen, this is Arthur Dando.' "'We've met,' Sid Chaplin muttered, and then began grinding his teeth, so no one was in any doubt that he was displeased to see me. "'I'm sorry we weren't all waiting for you as arranged,' Frank continued, with the kind of forced breeziness a manager will sometimes employ to try and mitigate a star performer's sullenness. "'Only Sid doesn't like to hang about in public places. He gets recognised, you see, and people start making a fuss.' Sid Chaplin grunted scornfully. There was a sharp whistle from outside and the train began to ease its way out of the station. As we glided out through the suburbs, no one speaking, I realised that our leader had been regarding me appraisingly for an uncomfortably long while. "'So you're the governor's new blue-eyed boy, then, are you?' he said, once he was sure he had unsettled me completely. "'Oh, I don't know so much about that,' I said, trying to sound cheery. "'Oh, yes. Everyone's talking about you, aren't they?' He looked to Mike and Albert for confirmation, and they nodded dutifully. "'Look at these two, he laughed. "'They're just eaten up with curiosity about you.' Mike and Albert both flushed and stared at the floor. "'Now then,' Sid continued, "'it's my understanding that you're with us on trial. "'Well, you're not the first, not by a long chalk, "'and I dare say you won't be the last, neither. "'A lot of them don't last too long, do they, Frank? "'The governor's little fancies. "'They can't stand the spotlight, the expectation. "'They drop by the wayside, "'and he moves on to someone else as if they'd never existed.' Frank O'Neill gave me a wan little smile, and Sid sat back, folding his arms smugly. "'So the governor saw you in a show, I suppose, did he?' Sid mused. "'What company would that have been for, if you don't mind me asking?' "'Um, the Footlights Club in Cambridge?' "'Oh, ho! College boy, is it?' "'No, no, no, well, that's to say I, I used to work in a... "'Don't worry, we've got nothing against college boys, as long as they pull their weight. "'Davy Burnaby, he was in that Footlights Club, wasn't he, Frank?' Mr. Concert Party, agreed Frank enigmatically. And he does all right for himself on the halls. He'll never be exactly in the top rank, you know, but he'll not starve, neither. Frank nodded, and with that, our leader began to gaze out of the window, and the conversation dried up completely. I felt about as welcome as a turd in a tin bath. Over lunch in the restaurant car, the first time I'd ever had a meal on a train, I had beef, I remember, Sid held court again. So you weren't a student, you say? What were you then? I was a college servant, I said. 
Good, solid, reliable position. You've got something to go back to then when, I mean if, <laughs> you decide to pack all this in. Isn't that right, lads? Mike and Albert nodded eagerly. Is that what happened to Ronnie Marston? I said. There was a loud clang as Mike dropped his fork onto his bone china plate. I mean to say, did he just decide to pack it all in? I asked. Ronnie Marston? Under the table, somebody kicked me sharply on the shin. I looked to Sid for an answer to my question, but the safety curtain had come down once again, and the meal concluded in puzzling silence. Was the guilty flush on his cheek merely because he felt the responsibility of his position as company leader, I wondered, or was there something more? When Sid got to his feet and led the way back to our compartment, Mike Asher surreptitiously grabbed my arm and held me back. He watched until the other three were well out of earshot, and then he hissed, "'Don't you know better than to talk about Ronnie bloody Marston?' "'Poor Ronnie Marston, you mean? Why?' "'Why?' he says. "'After what happened to him?' "'I don't know what happened to him. Nobody seems to want to tell me anything about it.' Mike gaped at me. "'You really don't know?' "'For God's sake, man, tell me!' After a moment he leaned forward over the table, confidentially. "'Well, you know the expression, breakneck speed. That's what the reviews say about us usually. The action takes place at breakneck speed, Brighton Argus, so forth.' Well, one night, Ronnie ran on at breakneck speed, slipped, fell off the stage, landed on his stupid head, broke his stupid neck. No. Did he? I mean, is he? No, 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 he's alive. But they don't know if he'll walk again, the poor chump. How did he come to slip, for heaven's sake? Ah, well, for that, we must look to the Rufford Bioscope. Most music hall bills in those days would have something like the Rufford Bioscope. Down would go the lights, down would come a big white sheet, and a projector would show jerky, oddly speedy moving pictures of this and that, slice of local life stuff like workers spilling out of a factory or a horse and cart going by. Real-life flesh-and-blood acts would hate to find themselves following the Bioscope in the running order, for two reasons. Firstly, the mood of the audience would be calmed to the point of torpor. Secondly, the calico sheet that was used for the projection was prone to waft about in draughts, so the projectionist would spray it generously with a gelatinous mixture which weighed it down and kept it flat. It also inevitably oozed all over the stage, making the place extremely slippery. Usually the curtain would come down and a front of tabs act would go on, a banjo singer or something, so that the stage could be mopped. But on the night of poor Ronnie's mishap, this individual had been pronounced too drunk to appear, and so there had been no gap between the bioscope and jailbirds. Hence Ronnie's entrance, at, as Mike had pointed out, breakneck speed, was followed immediately by his exit. Ditto, poor fellow. Still, he may have been the first to have a musical career cut short by the moving pictures, but he sure as hell wasn't the last. The reason we're not talking about it, Mike whispered, is that the stage manager swore blind afterwards that he'd told Sid we'd be straight after the bloody bioscope and to be sure to tell us all to be extra careful. But I'm telling you, Sid never said a word about it. Careless, I said. Careless my backside. What happened to Ronnie could have happened to any one of us, Mike said indignantly, and Sid wouldn't have minded, just so there was a vacancy for his precious brother to fill. No, I said. You don't really think... Mike put a finger to his lips, then wriggled out into the aisle... Just watch yourself, that's all I'm saying. Come on, we'd best get back. As I followed him through to the next carriage, I wondered just what I'd got myself into. Back in our compartment, Sid Chaplin had stuck his feet up on the banquette opposite and lit up a cigar. We continued north in frosty silence, until suddenly our leader clapped his hands and stood up. How long till Bolton, Frank? The company manager checked his pocket watch. We're due in around twenty minutes, he said. Right, let's get on with it then. 
All of a sudden, there was a flurry of activity. Everyone but me seemed to know what to do. Mike and Albert reached up to the luggage rack and pulled down a medium-sized trunk, while O'Neill pulled down the blinds so that no one could see in from the corridor, and Sid began unbuttoning his jacket. I just blinked, puzzled. Here. Sid took a costume from the trunk and chucked it to me. Get this on. He'd given me a comical sort of convict suit, arrows on it, like a loose-fitting pair of pyjamas. Sid himself was now struggling into something similar, while Mike and Albert were dressing up as prison guards. "'You see, college boy, this is how we drum up a crowd for jailbirds. It's one of the governor's oldest and best schemes, tried and tested.' Sid seemed to share a look with O'Neill, or did I imagine it, and then he went on. "'There'll be a black Mariah waiting for us at the station.' Mike and Albert manhandle us along the platform while we complain at the top of our voices about the horrible injustice of it all, making as much of a racket as possible. You with me? What we want, you see, is as big a crowd as possible following along, watching us all the way to the Black Mariah, because then, just as the desperate criminals are being shoved inside, ho! we make a break for it, off we go, hell for leather into the town, and the mob pursues us, do you see, you and me? Thinking we're desperate criminals, I said. Sid gave me an encouraging punch on the bicep. That's it, you've got it. We lead them a little bit of a merry chase around the town centre and end up, da-da, bang outside the theatre. Meantime, Mike and Albert have brought the Black Mariah round, they arrest us, and we all turn round and say, Carno's matchless comedians in Jailbirds, all this week at the theatre. See? Nothing to it. And you've done this before, have you? Yeah, yeah, many times. Never fails. It's an absolute copper-bottomed cert, this one, isn't it, lads? Mike and Albert nodded their agreement. It was all right for them, I thought. Their part of it sounded a good sight easier than mine. Shortly afterwards, the train pulled into Bolton. O'Neill kept us waiting until the platform was crammed with passengers, then out we came, pushing and shoving and making the maximum kerfuffle. "'Make way! Make way there!' Mike bellowed. "'Officers of the law! Transporting dangerous murderers! Stand aside!' Folk gasped, and a busy murmuring began. Mike and Albert wrestled us over to the back of the waiting Black Mariah, trailed by a growing, curious mob, and bundled Sid inside while he declaimed hammily, "'Will no one give me justice? Sweet justice!' "'You'll get your justice on the gallows, mate!' one bloke shouted. It occurred to me suddenly that some of the locals were getting a little wound up, but wouldn't mind dishing out a bit of justice of their own. At that moment, Sid booted the doors open wide. One hit Mike in the face. I saw him take the blow with the palm of his hand, and the other smacked into Albert, who may actually have been taken unawares, and down they both went, like a pair of felled oaks. "'Run for it!' Sid yelled. "'Run for your life!' I pelted off up the cobbled street, getting a good head start on the mob. I heard Mike shouting, "'Stop! Help!' And somewhere a police whistle sounded. Now footsteps, running footsteps, dozens of them, could be heard at my back. The street led up a slight incline to a main road at the top. Realising I didn't know which way to go, I turned to Sid. "'Which way's the theatre?' I shouted. He wasn't there. I skidded to a halt and looked back. Hurtling up the cobbles towards me came a tidal wave of local citizens. Behind them I could see the Black Mariah. Mr Sidney Chaplin, lead comic, was climbing out in leisurely fashion, dusting himself off. He was smirking his fat head off. There wasn't time then to try and work out what was going on, a particularly mean-spirited practical joke, or something more sinister. I had two choices— give myself up, or run like hell. Some extremely hefty-looking chaps with teeth missing were managing to run after me and roll up their sleeves at the same time. I decided to run like hell. Up to the junction. No time to toss a coin, I went right. The theatre was my only possible hope now, so I had to find it. On I galloped, knees pumping, past shops, past terraces of houses whose doors opened right onto the pavement. Fresh pursuers were maybe only a foot or two away, and the hot breath of the mob was on my collar, which they were longing to feel. "'Stop! Thief!' 
came the cry from behind. Clearly somebody hadn't been paying attention. I was supposed to be a murderer. I was tiring as I hurtled up what seemed to be a main sort of street now, but I was young and in reasonable shape, and no one was gaining on me. If anything, the crowd from the station were falling back. I began to think I was going to make it. If I could only find this damn theatre. I ran past a group loafing outside a bakery. Oh, that's good. Must remember that one. And one of them made a grab at me, which I easily batted aside. And then... Yes! Up at the far end of this thoroughfare was a large building with a telltale magnificence about it. A tram went ting and eased slowly aside to reveal the glorious legend, Hippodrome! Sanctuary! Almost there. I looked for the rescuing Black Mariah. No sign of it. More shouts from behind. Grab him! Stop him! Another whistle. Well, nothing for it but to make a dash for the theatre itself and take refuge inside. I gathered myself for the final sprint, and out went the lights. I came to a second later, sprawling on the road outside a butcher's shop. The meatmonger himself was standing over me, holding a great leg of pork in triumph above his head. I still had a moment. I scrambled to my feet to complete my mad dash for safety, only to find myself grasped firmly from behind by an unseen hand. No, I wasn't going to let myself be taken. I swung round and let fly at my captor, connecting cleanly with his jaw. There was a wet and bony sort of splat, and the sound of teeth rattling, and down he went like a sack of spuds. Off came his helmet, and his whistle bounced into the gutter. I'd punched a policeman. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In all honesty, I can't recommend spending a night in jail, especially not, and I say this from bitter first-hand experience, after receiving a right royal kicking from the larger part of the population of a northern industrial town. Early the following morning, I gasped myself up into a sitting position on my plank, it didn't really deserve the name of bed, and gingerly tried to enumerate my injuries. One eye was pretty much closed, but I was able to prise the swollen lids apart and satisfy myself that it was still in working order. I seemed to have escaped with all my teeth loosened but intact, although I could only just open my mouth wide enough to count them. Breathing was painful, maybe a cracked rib or two, and the fingers on one hand were like a little collection of black puddings. I tried to stand, but the cell immediately began to swim around alarmingly, so I sat back down again quickly. I had a little time then, wincing whenever another unsuspected bruise made itself known, to think about Sidney Chaplin's hilarious prank. Clearly it was one part putting the new boy in his place, 
mixed with three or four parts of payback for spoiling his plan to get his younger brother a job with Carno. I wasn't thrilled about it, but I realised that Sid was the number one, the top dog, and if I was going to get the favourable notice I needed from him, I'd be well advised not to let my temper get the better of me. Which is why, when the bolt eventually shot back and the door swung open to reveal a police constable and then Sid Chaplin himself, I didn't immediately leap to my feet and grab the bastard by the throat. Also, as it happened, neither leaping nor grabbing was on the list of activities I felt capable of just then. Ah, well, good morning. Look at you, Sid exclaimed, nudging a surly-looking constable to welcome him into Chaplin's world of mirth. <sighs> I croaked. Well, you almost made it, they tell me. <sighs> I said, spitting blood into the piss bucket. By the time we got the Black Mariah round to the theatre, you were already in custody, you see, and if only you hadn't thumped one of His Majesty's finest, we might have been able to get you out, but they insisted that you needed to learn your lesson. The constable whacked the palm of his hand with his truncheon, seemingly keen to enrol me on a refresher course. So what do you say, sir? Sid declaimed dramatically. Is he free to go? After a long moment, the constable grudgingly stepped aside, and Sid helped me out of the cell. As he helped me out of the police station, into a cab, and then eventually into a comfortable armchair at the digs where I should have stayed the night before, Sid was solicitousness itself, quite unrecognisable as the superior character from the previous day. Now then, he said finally, as he brought a cup of tea and a biscuit through for me from the landlady's little kitchen, you do look in quite a bad way, you know, old chap, quite a bad way. I felt in quite a bad way too, and was thinking that a drop of scotch might suit my situation rather better than a cup of tea. The effort of asking, though, kept me quiet. Sid perched on the adjacent settee and patted my knee, which made me hiss sharply through my wobbly teeth. Sorry, he said, withdrawing his hand quickly. So, I was thinking, if you wanted to drop out, then everyone would understand, no shame in it or anything, and, and don't feel you're letting anybody down. I'm sure the Governor will give you another go when you're mended. Course he will. And I'll just wire down to London now for a replacement. So don't you worry about a thing. In a flash I saw what he was up to. The replacement would be his brother, of course, who would be installed in a Carno company before the governor knew anything about it, while I joined poor Ronnie Marston in the ranks of the forgotten. Poor Arthur Dando, they'd call me. It's for the best, he said, laying his hand on my shoulder with extravagant care and then heading for the door. Mo, I grunted. Sid turned. What's that, old chap? Mo, I insisted. I'm not dropping out. I'll be fine, really. Just need a couple of hours rest. Sid looked doubtful. Really? Really. You're absolutely sure? Yes. You want to do the show tonight, you mean? In your present condition? Yes. Yes, I do. Sid's face hardened. Well, on your own head be it, he said. Then he gave a single nod and left without another word. I sat there in that strange Bolton parlour all by myself, feeling pleased with myself at first for not giving him the satisfaction of my stepping aside. Gradually, though, it became clearer and clearer to me that I was going to find it very difficult to get through a performance of the energetic harem scarum mayhem of jailbirds that evening, particularly considering that when I tried to take a fortifying sip of tea, I couldn't get any of my swollen fingers through the handle of the teacup. Still, somehow I had to drag my aching carcass through that evening's performance without bringing the whole thing down, or else my career as a Carno comedian was over before it had begun. That evening I sat in the dressing room at the Hippodrome and caught sight of myself in a mirror for the first time. 
my face looked like I'd been hit by a prize fighter who'd been driving a locomotive engine at the time. On the top of my head, there was one of those goose egg style bumps with a little tuft of hair on it that you might see in the funny pages, maybe after Mutt has hit Jeff with a pan. Mike Asher, stout fellow, trotted off to the stall's bar to fetch me a whisky. While he was gone, Frank and Sid came in. The company manager peered at me, whistling through his teeth. There's no way this chap should be going on stage tonight, he pronounced. I agree with you, Frank, Sid said, but he insists. Is that right, Arthur? Frank asked. I nodded vigorously. It hurt like hell and the room began to drift out of focus. See, Sid said, now all I'm saying is that it would be as well to have a replacement ready in case he sees sense and decides to step down from tomorrow's performance or in case he really fouls things up tonight and we decide we absolutely have to make a change. A replacement? Now, as it happens, my brother is coming up tomorrow morning to visit me for a couple of days. He's more than capable and he'll be Johnny on the spot, won't he? Frank looked dubious. I'm not sure the governor will be too happy about that, he said. I'm the number one, Sid said, and as the governor said to me the very last time we spoke, the number one takes responsibility. Frank turned back to me. You're sure you can manage, he said. Yes, I croaked, sitting down in my chair heavily and just about managing to make it look deliberate rather than the semi-faint that it was. Frank shot Sid a searching look, and our number one raised his eyebrows. Well, Frank said, you know my view... And with that, he and Sid left, and Mike returned with a large tumbler full of fiery Scottish anaesthetic. I told him that Charlie Chaplin was on his way to Bolton, and he tutted softly to himself. Oh, well, one good thing, Mike said then, cheerfully. At least we don't have all the bother of getting you changed, do we? I looked down and realised that he was right. Under my coat, I was still wearing my blood-stained jailbird costume from the afternoon before. A short while later, I stood in the wings, waiting for jailbirds to begin. The whisky had done the trick of perking me up, but the pains in my jaw, my ribs and my head were still humming away. Then the front man of the chain gang was shuffling out into the spotlights, and we were underway. The chain tugged at my leg as Mike stepped onto the stage, and then I followed as best I could, lurching along like Quasimodo. It was fortunate, I suppose, that the sketch was set in a prison yard, because my bruises and cuts, coupled with my painful doubled-over gait, looked deliberate, part of the scenario and after a moment or two I realised that I was the one the audience was watching, and I was the one they were giggling at, as little suffering noises escaped inadvertently from my battered lips every time I was obliged to change direction. At last I was permitted to stand still, to be addressed by the prison governor, and a deep sigh of relief brought me another laugh. Through my one good eye I caught sight of Sid at the other end of the line, frowning, puzzled at the audience's sympathy for me. After that I managed to limp through a sequence where we were supposedly breaking rocks, even though I could barely lift the sledgehammer and just leaned on it. This seemed to strike a chord with the audience too. So far so good. But I knew the difficult bit was coming up. The jailbirds hatch an escape plan. Sid is the ringleader, and I had a number of lines to speak during the discussion, making suggestions and so forth, without which, well, there was no scene, no story, no comedy. "'All right, gather round, lads,' says Sid, once the prison guards have gone off, reaching round and clapping me heartily on the back. "'Urgh!' I went, and the audience laughed again. Clearly they enjoyed their torture up there in the hard north. I could taste blood in my mouth. "'We need to make a break for it, boys. Any ideas?' "'My cue. Here we go,' I thought. "'All or nothing. Death or glory.' I gathered myself, took a deep and agonising breath, and came out with... It was loud enough, at least, but nonsense, 
and lights danced crazily before my eyes. Sid looked at me, and I could see him thinking. He could help me out, or he could simply let the sketch fall flat. With a huge effort, I gathered myself for another go. Even to me, it sounded like a dog trying to talk. I felt, rather than saw or heard, the audience begin to shift from one buttock to the other. Sid smirked. Suddenly, Mike Asher piped up. "'What's that you say, Lumpy?' he asked, cupping his hand to his ear. My heart jumped with a sudden burst of hope, like a drowning man being thrown a lifebelt. I grabbed Mike's sleeve and mumbled my line again, and Mike, bless him, forwarded it on to the world at large. "'Lumpy says, why don't we pretend to be Parsons?' The other jailbirds laughed, and the audience joined them. Sid's eyes narrowed, but he was enough of a pro to see that the sketch could now continue, and what's more, he could hardly miss the fact that the audience seemed to like the idea of Lumpy, a prisoner that only his best pal could understand. Miraculously, Mike and I managed to get through all of my dialogue, with me groaning along like a subhuman creature, and he translating Lumpy's noises into intelligible language. We established ourselves as an impromptu little comic double act as we did so. Even Sid seemed to be seeing the funny side by the end of the bit. The finale, though, was a different matter. It was a finely choreographed piece of chaos, with prisoners and guards galloping around in all directions at, as you will no doubt recall, breakneck speed. There was no hiding place. I simply couldn't manage a run, and even the effort of remaining standing was taking its toll. We reached a point where I was supposed to be the centre of a piece of frenetic action, and I found myself stuck, as if rooted to the ground, right in the middle of the stage. I was supposed to bolt once around the yard and then off into the wings, pursued by silent Albert Austin, my other travelling companion of the day before, playing a prison guard. I was supposed to do this, but my legs simply would not answer. I could see the audience clearly. The butcher who had laid me out with his leg of pork was in the middle of the front row, with a gleaming white shirt front dazzling me beneath his shiny chin. It crossed my mind to see if I could spit blood all over it, salvage some small satisfaction from the evening, but then the room started spinning. Albert started running towards me, expecting me to flee, but I just stood stock still and watched him. He slowed, he skidded to a halt, he reached out uncertainly to apprehend me, not knowing what else he was supposed to do or what on earth we would do then, when suddenly I shot up into the air. I was as surprised as he was, and he was standing there clutching at his heart. Neither of us had seen Mike coming, and he just scooped me up in his arms and raced off, once around the yard and then into the wings. My hero until he dropped me in a heap by the prompt desk, that is, where I lay moaning in agony while he clutched at his back, gasping. We caught each other's eye then, and burst out laughing. Oh, don't make me laugh, I cried, grabbing at my poor ribs, which only made Mike laugh even more. What's that, Lumpy? he chortled, slumping down to join me in sprawling on the floor. On stage, Jailbirds reached its raucous conclusion to rousing acclaim. The next thing I knew was that Frank and Sid were standing over us. "'Well, I don't know about you,' Frank said, "'but I think that will do very well, don't you?' He looked pointedly at Sid, who looked down at the pair of us, gave a little snort. "'I suppose so,' he said. Mike helped me to the bar, where I bought him the pint he so richly deserved. Every bone in my body was sore. I hadn't felt the power. I'd only felt a monstrous, swirling kaleidoscope of aches, pains and panic. And there was plenty more of the same to come tomorrow. But I was a carno
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.